Hi, I'm Jason Stockwell and welcome to Inside the Hive. So Inside the Hive focuses on three things, stories, startups, and people. Today we're joined by one of the researchers at Bristol Robotics Lab. His name's Tom Bridgewater. Tom looks at nuclear decommissioning and he came through a project called Farscope Project. I recently met him as I did an experiment for him based on human-robot interaction. It was all about how humans respond to robots taking risk. So if a robot was to make a decision, it's a really interesting topic as we look into the ethics of robotics. Tom touches on it a little bit, and I'm sure we'll have more podcasts in the future about it. Hi Tom, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, yeah, I'm really well, thanks. What are you going to talk to us about today? Uh, so I'm going to talk about my, my PhD research and my current research as a research associate, and maybe some ideas about HRI in the future. Oh, I can't wait to get started. So, um, Tom, you, you came through with a physics degree. How did you end up at the robotics lab? So I did I did my physics degree, well I guess eight years ago now was when it started. Uh, so it was I was in London at UCL. Um, I guess before before that I was just a kid who was interested in really actually the nuclear stuff, like nuclear reactions and things like that. Um, and then after like during my time during my degree, I kind of I loved it, but. It was. It's very theoretical. Like you don't. You don't see a lot of. Don't see a lot of actual outcome from what you're doing. It's more, you know, you see a bunch of equations or you learn about something that seems really cool, but it's all. It's all very small. Usually, it's you know, like, sub microscopic, but. I wanted to do something a bit more practical, but still, use my brain in the same way. So actually, when I was applying to PhDs, I didn't only apply to robotics. I was looking kind of engineering. Actually, weirdly, I applied to a lot of turbine things. So actually, before I, I was coming here, I accepted a PhD that was looking at um, an anti, anti-fouling uh, coating for turbine blades. It's a material science degree, uh, PhD, but it looks at how when airplanes are flying, they get hit with a lot of particulate and that damages the turbine blades, which reduces the efficiency of the turbine blade. And so I was originally going to be looking at a way to cope that to stop that happening because initially when I applied for a PhD here with Farscope and I'm really sorry what is Farscope so it's a center for doctoral training which essentially means that it's a it's a four-year course where the first years are taught masters so that they do accept people from different backgrounds you get people from psychology from biology from biomechanics the idea is that you get a lot of different ways of thinking and then teach them a bit about robotics and then let them explore robotics because i think robotics research is well no it's probably not true that it's in its nascent stages but you, you know like you don't you get engineers mostly and computer scientists and actually introducing people with a different way of thinking is a really good way to forward the field so i applied to that from a physics background along with a few other phds and i actually got rejected from the um from the initial application and then it was a weird one where a couple of weeks later, while I was on holiday in America, actually, I got an email saying that they actually thought they'd found something that would be really up my street, which was a PhD in robotics that was looking at nuclear decommissioning. And so I came back from America, and this was a week before I was meant to start my PhD in Southampton. Um, and they told me that they wanted to offer me this PhD in nuclear decommissioning. Initially, it was looking at um, storage pools. So these are places in nuclear facility where a lot of old waste is thrown. And over time, they kind of become unsure of exactly what's in there. There's trolleys, there's 
dead birds, things like that, that become irradiated and they need to be inspected. So initially I was looking, I was meant to be looking at, um, at robots that could go into this, to these storage pools and map them. And so I've just accepted it. <laughs> I was like, that sounds really cool. Like it's practical, like what I want to do, it's to do with nuclear stuff, which I found very interesting. And it was to do with like decommissioning, which is a really important part of future for nuclear, the nuclear industry. And the weird extra bit for me was it felt like it was actually helping people. So often people say, you know, robots take jobs. But in this case, you're preventing workers from being in a dangerous environment where they could become irradiated and, you know, develop some sort of cancer or something. Like, to me, it seemed like it was benefiting people to be doing this research, which I think is really important when you're doing research. You have to feel like you're doing something useful. So, yeah. I accepted that and almost immediately the remit changed. <laughs> so it wasn't it wasn't any longer looking at these storage pools. I think because they'd recruited a, someone at Manchester to do something similar. So ours moved to looking at um, mapping uh, nuclear caves. So a, a nuclear cave is an area in a nuclear facility that is that much of the sort of key pipe work and all the pressure vessels are rooted through. Um, but it's sealed when the nuclear facility is built to keep all the harmful radiation stuff inside. So what they want when they're decommissioning these 50, 60 years later is the, the plans are often incomplete. So they need to know what's inside, how it's deteriorated. And they can only drill a very small hole, sort of 15 centimetres in diameter, which means you can't send enough of the sensory payload in on you know, one small robot to actually map the whole thing. You need a swarm of robots, um, and preferably heterogeneous. So what they asked me to do was look at, can we use a heterogeneous swarm to map this unknown environment? So that was what my, my PhD looked at. I kind of, the way I approached it was divided it into three different areas, which was uh, sensing, locomotion and control. So I sort of just did a, a review of all the possible sensors, all the things that the nuclear industry said they wanted to see inside the, the cave, you know, radiation, temperature, humidity, that sort of thing just review of small sensors that could be carried on robots for that. And that sort of formed a chapter. And then I looked at the different locomotion strategies. And this is actually one I had a lot of fun in. <laughs> so uh, we got, we got uh, this is like my, my very first ever sort of robotics experiment, which will be clear when I describe it. <laughs> so we got, um, do you know Lego Mindstorm robots? No, what are they? Oh, so they're like these little, essentially it's like a control block and then a set of Lego that comes with it. So you can build different robots um, just from this kit. You can have sort of, I think the kit comes with enough to build a sort of a standing robot, a wheeled robot, and a tracked robot. So what I wanted to do is just as my sort of initial thing was compare different locomotion strategies like for ground locomotion. So I was looking at um, comparing tracks, wheels, um, spherical locomotion, and uh, wegs. Wegs are kind of like a three-spoked bicycle wheel without the wheel part around it, so it's just the spokes. So they're kind of, you can imagine sort of three little claws moving around so that you can get over higher obstacles. You can, good for stairs. Yeah, good for, good for anything that's, uh, that's hard for wheels to actually get over. So I'd got these, this idea of comparing these different things and, you know, I was my, my initial thing was like, how do I fairly compare? Because, you know, if you have multiple different robots, then you've got a lot of variants there so my idea was what well, we could use a lego robot that'd be really cool um 
so we bought this Lego robot and constructed these different ways of moving about. And my favourite thing was um, to do the spherical locomotion, we put a wheeled robot inside a hamster ball. <laughs> so, and then we wanted to look at um, uh, what height obstacles they could overcome, what gap they could cross and what incline they could go up. Mm -hmm. um, so I was just sat in my bay playing with Lego <laughs> for the first, like, I'd say like three or four weeks uh, after I'd done a bit of literature review on locomotion strategies and it was really good fun. <laughs> <laughs> and what did you find? What locomotion did you go with? Well, so it, came, it kind of came down to two. So it, tracks were the best at uh, going up an incline and they had the best uh, obstacle clearance. Um, but the, the spherical had the best gap clearance. Um, but... Part of that is probably just because, in terms of its size, it had a much larger diameter. So it was, I think, a 30 centimetre uh, hamster ball that this robot was inside of, so it gives it better gap clearance. Because it was not good at going up the, up the incline. If you can imagine like a sphere trying to go straight up something, it's rolling from side to side. It was So that was kind of like an initial experiment that I tried to submit, but it didn't, didn't really go my way. <laughs> But it did lead me on to looking at supplementary modalities uh, from the locomotion, which I, I found really interesting. So what I mean by a supplementary modality is that it's, it adds something to the locomotion. So if you're a wheeled robot and you have the ability to hop, you maybe can overcome the fact that they're not very good at getting upstairs or over certain obstacles. So I think there's something called a, a scout robot, which has a, it's a little two-wheeled cylinder and it has a, a spring-loaded spring jumping mechanism and that can cause it to like, jump up over stairs. Mm -hmm. um, and then the one that I was most interested in was grappling. So in a nuclear cave, there's a lot of pipes, and pipes seem to be a very good target for a grappling hook. You throw a grappling hook over it, you can pull yourself up, you can see more, you can maybe get over obstacles. Um, if you have two, then you could do sort of a brachiation, a brachiation which is like a monkey swinging in the trees. Um, so what I wanted to do was try and develop a detachable robotic grappling hook, <laughs> which was kind of like, I don't know, it was like this cool idea that I had, and then I'd never done anything with, with hardware. I'd, I'd never, as I say, I was a physicist, we just dealt in theoretical, I'd never built anything. So it was really exciting, the idea to try and build some hardware. Um, so naturally I'd fire up SolidWorks <laughs> and uh, started to have a go on there and my kind of design idea was like a handcuff so you know how you get the ratcheted swivel on a handcuff you know you hit it onto someone's wrist it swings around and then you can detach it so I thought well, why can't you do that for a robot to you know use as a grappling hook so what we ended up having was sort of a stem and then this handcuff looking part on the top of it which the idea is you could fire it and it would latch on you could pull yourself up um, I got quite into this designing <laughs> and I spent maybe maybe a couple of months on it and we um, ended up, we didn't end up designing a firing mechanism for it. Um, we ended up dropping it to test it um, to see whether or not it would attach consistently, what height it could attach from, what speed, minimum speed you needed to, to drop it. Um, and then I, and then it kind of became clear that I was going down a rabbit hole of just designing this. So we had to put an end to it. So, so we did, we, we, we wrote a paper on it published the paper um, and kind of moved on. But we got an intern to, to come work on it, which is really fun. Um, her name was Aud, Aud Bunnell, uh, 
and she did some amazing work. Like she she took my idea, which I have to admit looked pretty ungainly, <laughs> and she she made it look amazing. She was a, a I believe a mechanical engineering student from from France, and the equations that she worked out with that thing blew my mind. And then she she attached a little um little motor to it so that you could uh, open and close it without having to do it by hand, so that it was you know could be used by a robot. Um, redesigned the whole thing it looked so sleek and it had uh ended up looking more like a rocket it had you know flights on it to make sure it flew straight it was that sounds amazing it was, it was really cool um <laughs> so after i mean after that we, we had to put it to bed because i needed to move on to other other bits of swarm but it was a really fun piece of research to do and it was like my first sort of look at hardware and that that, that ended up the sort of the, the looking at locomotion so it was like comparing the different because you can use wall climbing uh, flying ground robots were sort of the way I divided the categories into. And then I added supplementary modalities. Um, I just did a whole review of that. So now you've kind of got, you've got the sensing, how, what, what do I need to, to map this nuclear cave? Uh, and then you've got the, the locomotion, like how will I, how will I move around in this cave? So with my end goal kind of being not to provide a complete solution, but to com- to provide the the parts that you need to put together a solution um, for industry, um, which moved me on to my last my last sort of bit, which was the control, and so I read a lot. I sort of read a lot about swarm behavior, general swarm control, um, and I found it's called virtual potential fields. So it's basically moving a robot under the influence of virtual potentials. Um, and I found a lot of things about how that could be done. But for me, the interesting idea was that you could treat the robot like a particle acting under the influences of physical forces, being that, again, my physics background. Um, and it felt like I had a sort of a way to get into that because I had some prior knowledge about potential fields. So what I noticed was there was a lot of work on pattern formation and spatial distribution and path planning using virtual potential fields. Um, What I thought those things could be sort of combined into was an exploration sort of algorithm um, or control architecture rather. And I don't know, the way I then sort of went about applying that was I thought, what, what kind of behavior do we want? And the idea in swarm, uh, swarm robotics is that you want simple rules with a sort of emergent and interesting outcome. And, well, I looked at sort of, my idea was I look at nature and there's a lot going on. It's very complicated. Uh, and there are these four fundamental forces that drive it all, right? There's the weak nuclear force, the strong nuclear force, gravity, um, and the electromagnetic force. And I thought, well, if those four rules can can define the entire natural world why, why can't they be used to you know a rip to power a relatively simple swarm behavior so what i went on to try and do was use three of the four so well part of the electromagnetic magnetic force I, I use the electrostatic force um i use the gravitational force and i use uh, an analogy of the strong nuclear force to try and move the robots for exploration so the way that that kind of looked um, was that you'd use the electrostatic force to repel robots from obstacles, like 
like charges repel in nature. Uh, you use the gravitational force to attract robots to distant goals, um, kind of like how gravity works over very long distances, and you use the strong nuclear force to attract the robot to very close goals. So those goals being for the gravitational force, it was the centre of mass of the unexplored region. Um, and then for the strong nuclear force, it was to the closest frontier cell. And can you just clarify, what exactly do you mean by a frontier cell? So an occupancy grid is a way of, a pretty simple way of doing mapping. So you, you, take, a, you take an area and you divide it into a grid. And in each cell in that grid, you store how likely it is to be occupied. So, you know, if I, if I bump into something, you know, there's a pretty high percentage chance that in that cell there's an obstacle. So a frontier cell is an unexplored cell, i.e. a cell I know nothing about, next to an explored cell, a cell I know stuff about. And so it's on the frontier of exploration. So what I would do is say if there's one of those cells in my sensor range, I'd like to feel strong attractive force to it because then I'm, you know, I'm pushing the frontier of the exploration effort. Um, and if there's no, if there's nothing in my sensor range, no, none of those cells, then I'll move towards the centre of mass of the unexplored area because that seems like a sensible place to move to if I want to explore more. Um, that, and that was our control architecture that we designed. So I, I called it Reactive Virtual Forces because I tried to think of a cool name. <laughs> <laughs> so after the Farscope project, you started working as a researcher straight away? After that. I accepted a postdoctoral position here. I think the title's maybe research associate. I should probably know that. Um, <laughs> but but no, I, I accepted the the job here, and it was to look at. It was still working with the nuclear industry. So my PhD was sponsored by the National Nuclear Laboratory, and I was folded in as part of Farscope because it made sense to have a cohort of people around you um, doing similar research. Uh, but the funders of that are also. The, the project's called r it's Robotics for Nuclear Environments, is what I'm working on now. Um, and their sort of remit is to make step changes in the nuclear industry, like small small steps towards automating parts of decommissioning. Because it's a huge task that's going to cost hundreds of billions, and if you can automate part of it and save, save cost and save time and make people safer, then you're making a big difference overall. Um, and any research is valuable because they don't have a lot of automated systems. Um, so what I'm doing, what I was, well, what I was hired to do now is look at um, online risk assessment. So it's how do you, how do you want a robot to approach dangerous situations where it might have to make a difficult decision? Because often they have a controller in the loop. Well, in fact, the nuclear industry desire having a controller in the loop, like a human controller, because there's you know liability and safety basically. Um, but my argument is that you can't always be watching the robot. It's kind of like a manager who has 10 employees. You have to, at some point, put some trust in them that they have, they're capable to make decisions on their own. Um, and what I found was that I wanted to have a robot that could make trustworthy decisions. But the first step before making that robot was seeing how people tr trust a robot like what makes a person trust a robot decision which is well which is what the experiment that you took part in was was looking yeah. at are you okay to just give a quick overview of the experiment for our, for our listeners yeah sure so um 
so what, what I was looking at was how a robot's approach to risk affects user trust. So that involved comparing four different approaches to risk. That was risk-seeking, i.e. a robot that always takes risks. Didn't anticipate that one doing very well for trust. Um, <laughs> and, then, um, and then we had a risk-averse robot. So it's a robot that would never take any risks. It would always just take the certain option moving down, moving down a path. Um, there was risk-neutral, which is actually more, it's kind of the typical way that robots approach risk now. It's looking at expected value. Um, and which is which is the average if you take if, if you take make the same decision many many times the expected value is what what you expect that decision to be worth mm -hmm. um, and then finally the human approach to risk so this was based off of uh, an economics paper I read called prospect theory which attempted to classify how people approach risk so if I offer you the choice for example of a, uh, do you want to take an option that's 100% for you to gain £45? Or do you want to take an option that's 50% you'll gain £100 or 50% you'll gain £0? What do you choose? I'd choose the risk. You choose the risk. That's interesting. So in most cases, and people wouldn't take that risk. People would, would take the certain option. Um, because when people face a gain, they tend to be risk averse. People will choose to take the definite path of the money. But if you flip the option, and so now I say to you, do you want to take the 100% chance of losing £45 or the 50% chance of losing 100 or losing zero? Now what do you choose? Yeah, again, I choose the risk. The risk. See, and that's in line with what people would do. So people tend to be risk-seeking when it's a loss because there's a chance of them losing nothing. in that. Well, at least in that example I gave you. Um, so they sort of did this, this first paper where they kind of heuristically said that was the case. And the other thing that they found was that people underweight low probabilities. Sorry, underweight high probabilities. So if you're looking at 99% chance and you're comparing it to 100% chance, that 99% chance looks to the average person more like 95%. They underweight it compared to certainty. Um, and then, conversely, you have people overweighting low probabilities, which is a bit easier to understand because it's why gambling exists. You see a 0.1% chance and you think, oh, yes, I might, I might win something here. That's, to me, that's worth 5%, say. Um, and then they also change the value of, of a prospect. So in that example I gave, if you looked at that and you were thinking £100 or £45, if you're incredibly wealthy, that might look like nothing to you. You might take the risk on a whim because it's more fun. If you're someone who's a bit more, you know, you're impoverished, £100 could mean a lot to you. And so you might take the risk because that would make a big difference to your life. Or you might take the certainty because you know £45 is going to make a big difference to you. It's worth £45. You know you're getting it. Um, so you change the value as well. Uh, so what their second paper did, which is cumulative prospect theory, was formalise that in a sort of, they, they came up with analytical equations that defined how people change that probability and how people change that value. Um, and what I wanted to do was put that into a robot making decisions and see if people trusted it, um, which is how that experiment came about. <laughs> it's 
It's really interesting. I was thinking about outsourcing the decisions uh, we make already to robotics and what ones we're going to make in the future after after going through your experiment. Uh, I, I was thinking, obviously, we we pay attention to social media algorithms and uh, and Spotify playlist suggestions and clothing suggestions. It's it's like a lot of the decisions that we already make outsourced. And I was kind of wondering how far it's going to go in the future. An interesting thing I was kind of thinking about the other day um, was would a person give the robot the decision? Not knowing what the decision was going to be, would you say, actually, I would want to make the decision. You made the decision. The reason I was thinking about this was because I was thinking, have you heard about the trolley, the trolley problem? Yeah, the, f- the philosophical trolley problem. Yeah. Yeah, so you're, if you're going along on a train and there's five people on the railway track um, and you have the option to pull a lever that will divert it, but there's one person on that railway track, you're taking an active part in killing that person and there's a, there's a split about whether you will pull that lever because if you do nothing, you'll kill five people, but you haven't done it. That was always going to happen. But if you pull the lever, you're making the conscious decision to kill that one person. And my thought was... Well, would, would you let a robot make that decision for you? It's a really interesting point. Would, I guess the robot would choose to preserve life above anything else, preserve the most life. And then would it take the conscience away from the person who had to make that decision? Well, that's, that's an interesting thing, right? Like, the, so the, the trolley problem progresses from being five strangers and a stranger to being five strangers and your mum, for example. And in that situation, do you want the robot making the decision? Not really, probably. Like, if I probably I don't, I don't know if it's a hot take, but I, I wouldn't want to kill my mum. <laughs> so it's it's sort of I don't know. It's kind of becomes more of an ethics question, I suppose. Of do do you want the robot to be making ethical decisions? And this this isn't my area. It's just an area that interests me. Um, there are other people in the lab working on robot ethics, and it's very very interesting research. Um, but that that sort of thought experiment of would I, would I want a robot to make that decision leads back to my work because it's how does it analyze that is that that's a risk isn't it you how do you analyze that risk there's no there's no one model for risk and how are you going to get a robot to take into account all the factors like before you before you conduct an experiment before you do a lot of things in these days with health and safety you have to make a risk assessment and that's kind of like your almost heuristic assessment of the the dangers of that task, which you kind of just inherently know. Like you look at a task and you're you're like, okay, this is dangerous or not dangerous. These are the dangers. But you've kind of, I guess, learned what is and isn't dangerous. Giving that to a robot, that ability, is interesting because. One, you're going to have to trust it to assess the appropriate things. And two, once it's assessed those things, how does it weigh them up? How does it, you know, like, how does it assess what a medium risk is, a high risk is? If not, without knowing the probability innately. How, how, like, at least the way that I've looked at decision-making is quite probabilistic. And if you don't have any experience in making those decisions then you don't have a lot of experience in saying what the probability is likely to be which is why what i'd like to do next is look at 
learning to make risk-based decisions, um, which isn't really my area yet. Like I've, very, I've only very briefly touched on learning, but I do think that it's going to be a huge thing going forward is that as tasks get more complex, the ability of a programmer to see all aspects of that task and program robot, especially when it has to interact with people, is going to become more difficult because you can't necessarily think of everything because a lot of what we do is subconscious. So it's better maybe to get a robot to learn how to make those interactions because as robots become more ubiquitous, they're going to be finding their way into homes and they're going to be interacting with people. And this is, this I think is why we, we do so much human robot interaction uh, research is that we need to, we need to know what's, what's ethical, what's safe, what approaches we need to take when we're interacting with people. Um, and it's my belief that once we have a foundation for that research, a robot can start to learn how to behave around people in the same way people learn to behave around people. So you've mentioned HRI before and a project that you're working on with your colleague. Can you give us a little bit more background into what that, what that is? So Greg's on a... Di- so there's, there's more than one nuclear project. There's RNE, there's NCNR, and there's RAIN. But Greg's working... Well, he's a, he's a Farscope student as well. Um, he's looking at um, teleoperation. Uh, we're doing a lot of interesting teleoperation stuff, and we're doing a lot of virtual reality, which I think is really cool. And currently, he's looking at how you can move a robot to reduce cognitive load. And what I think will be a cool collaboration between the two of us is you shoot out a waypoint to where you want the robot to go, um, and then you can assess the risk on that path. So maybe maybe someone's focusing on a different part of their task that's not just controlling the robot. Um, maybe they're trying to look for different areas that could be radioactive um, in their virtual reality. Uh, so they're they're being a bit complacent about where to how to move the robot. If the robot talks back to you and tells you that you're doing something dangerous, I think that's a very interesting sort of topic to be explored. Because a lot of what it seems to be at the moment is people interacting with the robot's decisions. Like when you did my experiment, you had the option to question the robot, which was, was for me, it was a measure of how much you trusted it because my idea was that you would decrease over time how much you questioned it as you kind of got to know the robot through. Um, but ultimately, you made the decision for the robot. You could alter or accept that decision. What if it was actually the other way around and ultimately the robot got to alter or accept your decision? That's, for me, an interesting question. Do pe- I feel like, just from gut, people wouldn't like that. Like, if, the, if, you, if you choose to do something and then a robot says no, I feel like people wouldn't like that. But the robot probably has, well, has more processing power. Mm, arguable. But it, has, it, has, it knows maybe more about the situation or about what's going to damage it and it could interact with your decision to stop you doing something that's dangerous for it or for you but would people like that would they like being contradicted by a robot and this is this is what i've this is something interesting that i want to explore yeah you're right this goes so much further than just robotics and back to what you spoke about earlier on actually which is the lab are really good at bringing in people that aren't just roboticists so you have people from psychology through to biology and philosophy and they all have different specialities. I think that that's probably the beautiful thing about robotics is that it touches so many different subject areas. You have medical robotics, 
touching medicine. You have nuclear robotics in, the, in looking at nuclear decommissioning. You have human-robot interaction mixing with psychology. You have just so many different aspects all coming together because, well, because people want to automate processes and make their lives easier and safer. And I just think that that's, that's the amazing thing about robotics. And I, that's why I think the Farscope is such a good thing is because you're getting people from different backgrounds and bringing them in so that you gain knowledge that isn't just engineering or computer science. So how does it work with rolling your research and the rest of the team's research to industry? And what's already been rolled out? We most, so the way research and industry work are there are these things called technology readiness levels. So there, it's a scale of, I believe, one to nine and sort of one, two, three are what we focus on research, developing ideas, and then seven, eight, nine is ready for industry, can be commercially viable. Um, and then the sort of the four, five, sixes is this weird void land where there's, you need a lot of funding to move it essentially from a three to a, to a seven or eight where you can actually use it. And, and that area is un- underfunded, I believe, because there's, you know, there's a lot, it's a lot, it's a huge money sink. You have to move something from an idea to, to being commercially viable. Um, so the things that we've rolled out to industry, I can't speak to there being a lot, but the, what's definitely true is that one thing I think I can talk about is that they, they like off the shelf solutions that are modified because they know the robot works because it's already commercially viable. Um, but then you make a few sort of additions to it and it becomes something you can use to conduct difficult tasks in the nuclear industry. Um, one example I can think of is using uh, underwater robots to look at, it's kind of what I talked about at the beginning about what my PhD was originally going to be about, was looking at storage pools. They use a, a automatic, a tele-operated underwater robot that you can buy off the shelf fitted with a few extra gadgets to explore these nuclear storage pools and find out what is in there. And actually, I believe it has an arm on it that they then use to move the waste. In terms of other nuclear applications, though, I don't know if you've heard about the, the robots from Fukushima. So they, the, the Fukushima accident. So they, they retrofitted things called quince robots to go and have a look in the, in the, nuclear, in the nuclear fallout area. Um, and it was kind of a testament to planning ahead. So they had, I believe, six different missions, and I think only two of them succeeded. So with the research pipeline and how that works with industry readiness, you've you've spoken about those steps one to three that you guys work in, and then seven to nine that's more in the implementation stage. And you've mentioned that dip in the middle between four to six. And I was just wondering, what do you think it will take to shorten that pipeline do you think it's investment from the government or do you think it's external investors or more entrepreneurship i think the fairest way to do it is probably a a combination you know you have for most of these technologies you have an end user who wants a product and often the end user who wants the product isn't willing to invest the money in these middle stages because there's no certainty they'll get a product out of it and therefore they're you know they don't have a definite return 
Um, it's a risk. <laughs> <laughs> but you have, you have researchers who are very willing to look at the early stages and you have end users who really want the product. And then I think if you combined the money and the, the research to fill the middle part, that's, that's the best way to do it because you get, maybe you get packs between a university and a company to help move things from the research stage to the commercially viable phase and maybe both of them get a piece of the pie that's one way maybe to do it um but i think what we have here is quite quite a good step towards that you yourself i believe work in the incubator um i think that is essentially bridging the gap it is more tailored towards entrepreneurship and developing your own um product but it does does exactly that. So the way the lab is physically structured is that you have the Bristol Robotics Laboratory on one side, then in the middle you have the incubation hub where people can sort of begin their startup, and then you have the future space where there are, is sort of after the incubation stage, you have your idea, you have your business set up. And it's kind of this like intellectual and physical progression from research to industry. Um, and it, it kind of well, I actually think it's kind of interesting that even the size here, if you look at the size of the robotics lab and the size of Future Space and then the size of the incubator, that incubator, to me, whether it's right or wrong, represents those middle technology, technology stages. And it's the, probably the smaller part. Definitely, yeah. Um, but it's where a lot of work has to go in. And I think that the UE and the robotics lab are really good at recognising that and giving funding for those middle stages so that you can take an idea from research to industry. But I think in gen like in other places that, that is a less explored area. Because it's it's the least interesting area. From from a from yeah. like a from from you know a researcher standpoint and from an industrial standpoint, it's the bit where you have to put in a lot of work to get something working properly. You can't just for for us we, we come up with a great idea, we test it and you know we leave open questions deliberately for other researchers to interpret and to answer. But you can't do that in the middle stages. That's where you're trying to close all the questions. You're trying to make sure you have a product that works. And that, that's hard. That's, that, that's going to work every day and really smashing it out, <laughs> which, yeah. which, which is hard to do. Tom, thanks very much for joining me today. It's been fantastic to sit down and chat, and chat with you. Uh, thanks very much. So Inside the Hive is made by me, Jason Stockwell, and BotHive. BotHive is an online platform where small businesses go to find the right robot for them. So if you're ready to start looking for your next robot, or if you're a robotics company that wants to market their product on the site, then get in touch. Our website's bothive, bot-hive.com. To reach out to us on social media, just at WeAreBotHive across LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. The podcast is available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, so be sure to subscribe to it. Any feedback on the podcast is really welcome as well. Thanks for listening, and I'll speak to you next week.